Well, good morning. I'm Tom Licata. I'm one of the uh, elders here at Grace. And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to open to Hebrews, book of Hebrews, chapter 12. And if you are able, stand with me as we read the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that... You have set before us a race and and, and given us the grace to run this race. And you've given us the example of Jesus. Help us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and to follow his example. And let us learn, Lord, today, to to speak through your word today, that we can learn about those things that weigh us down, that, that slow us down in running this race. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A number of years ago, I was a uh, youth leader at um, the other church I was going to, working with the junior high group. And one time, us leaders had gotten together for like a, you know, leaders get together. We were having like a swim party at someone's house. So we were in the pool, and I, I challenged another one of the leaders to, uh, you know, to a race in, in the pool. Now, his name was Jim Barstow, and, and Jim was, uh, he was bigger than me and more athletic, and uh, it didn't really look like much of a contest. I mean, I can swim, but not really that fast necessarily. But so he, Jim says, sure. So uh, we get in the pool, and we're kind of a, a, on the side of the pool. You know, or we're touching the side. Our arms kind of up on the uh, cement there. Another leader was, was going to say go. Now, Jim, um, he was more in the center of the pool, and I was a little more off to the side, almost in, uh, by the corner. So another leader says, on your mark, get set, go. Well, Jim takes off, and I, instead of taking off, I jumped out of the pool. I ran to the other side and jumped in the end. And so when Jim gets there, he looks up, and I'm there. I got one, and he's just shaking his head. How'd you do that? And I just said, well, yeah, told you. Well, obviously, because I was not swimming in the water. Because swimmer, you know, water holds you back, right? And uh, whenever you run a race, you want to avoid anything that's going to impede your progress. Now, if you look at water... Uh, you know, and nobody's in the water, and the water is not being disturbed. The water, is, it's nice and clear, and you can look right through it. And it doesn't necessarily look like something that would hold you back, I mean, if you didn't know better. But if you ever try to run in water, you know, I mean, you can make progress, and, you know, but you're going kind of slow. And, that, and sometimes I feel like that's how we're running this race. We're making progress, but, you know, it seems like we're going kind of slow. And that something's impeding us. That's, that's what I want to talk about. You know, the writer of Hebrews says to remove and to lay aside every weight and that which is holding us back, which is impeding us and slowing us down from running this race. Which is really the main point I want to, to make this morning, that we need to remove every hindrance that holds us back from running the race. Everything that, that slows us down in our walk with the Lord, that uh, keeps us from being used by Him in the way that, that He intends to use us. So now that the question is, what are some of these hindrances? Well, to talk about that, I want to look at a story in the Old Testament. 
that I believe will illustrate about four of these hindrances. So if you um, have your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings, 2 Kings uh, chapter 6. And uh, we'll start with verse 24. And it says, Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. Now, just to give you a little background. This is at a time when the nation of Israel was divided into the north and the south. Uh, when the nation of Israel first became a nation under King Saul, they were united. And, uh, and, and they were united under Saul, and they were united under David, and they were united under Solomon. Then after Solomon, uh, the kingdom broke up into the north and the south. The northern kingdom being called, and if you could just, uh, there we go. The northern kingdom being called Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. And in the yellow there is the northern kingdom and the, the uh, kind of the pinkish color below is Judah. And uh, the northern kingdom of Israel was constantly at war with the king of Syria. Now your Bible might say the king of Aram, but it's the same, uh, same land, same country. So they were at war with each other. And so... The king of Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, wanted to try to strike a decisive blow against Israel. And so he sent his entire army and laid siege to Samaria. Now, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Jerusalem was the capital of the southern kingdom. But the northern kingdom, it was Samaria. So the king had sent and laid siege uh, to Samaria. Now, when you, when you wanted to conquer a city in those days, you could, you could attack it directly, you know, like scaling the walls or get a battering ram, whatever, trying to knock down the gate. But another strategy would be to, to just lay siege to the city, try to starve them out until they finally decide to give up and surrender. And that's what, uh, what was going on here. And it was actually um, working out quite well, as you see in verse 25. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now... Um, 80 shekels of silver comes to about two pounds. And in today's market, silver is selling for about $31, $32 an ounce. So if you calculate it out, it comes to about $900 for a donkey's head. Now, I understand that you know, in precious metals is pushed up a little bit because of the economy. But nevertheless, you get the idea. It was anything that was edible, even remotely edible, was very expensive because, because the famine was so severe. So severe, in fact that some people in the city were resorting to cannibalism. And when the king became aware of this, he became so distraught that he would tear his clothes, which is what the Israelites would do in those days when they were uh, distraught about something. And then you see what he says in verse 31, the king. And he said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elijah, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Now, why did he say that? I believe it's because he was angry at God. You know, you look at the situation that Samaria was in and his people was in and he heard about the things going on and he was just distraught and he was angry at God. You know, why was God doing this? Now, when you get angry at God, obviously you can't directly do anything to God, but you can do something to, uh, to like his servant or his representative. Now, Elijah was like the, the number one prophet in the land. He was the, the main prophet to the, the northern kingdom at this time. So he sends someone to, to take off the head of Elijah. Well, we see in verse 32, Elijah was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elijah said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? 
Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? So this guy was um, sent to kill Elijah. And Elijah, being the prophet that he was, knew that this guy was coming. So he says, look, this guy's coming to kill me, so I want you to shut the door and don't let him in, which is probably good advice. And he, uh, he said, now look, right behind him, you know, the king is coming. Now, probably what happened is the king made this, this rash pronouncement, and he, as soon as he made it, he probably kind of regretted it. So he's kind of coming after this servant uh, to tell him not to do that. Nevertheless, he was still angry at, uh, at Elijah. Look in verse um, 33. And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And so the king, apparently Elijah had, uh, had advised the king, look, just wait on the Lord. And that's the advice we have, right? In, in Isaiah, you know, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, shall mount up with wings as eagles. And, and this is apparently uh, what Elijah had told the king. Just, just wait for the Lord. And the king is he's angry, angry at what God's doing, angry at what's going on. He goes, why should I wait for the Lord any longer? You know, this, this trouble is from the Lord, and he's blaming God about what's going on. And so, um, and, and if I were to ask you, if there were, you know, have there ever been times when you were angry at God? Now, I assume if, for most of you, if you're honest with me, most of you would say, yeah, there, were, there have been times, maybe are times, that you're angry at God. And you, you would think of times, you know, the tough times you've been through, those times when you were just kind of miserable, and you're asking yourself, why is, is God doing this? Why is God you know, putting me through these tough situations? You know, what have I done? Sometimes I've even said that to God. You know, God, what, what have I done? Have I sinned so terribly? You know? um, why are you putting me through this? We go through time, and so we get angry. And you know, it's, a, it's a normal reaction when, when tough times, when things aren't going your way. In fact, I'm convinced that God purposely puts us through things that we know we're not going to like. He knows we're not going to like. He knows we're going to get angry. And that's our reaction. But what should be our reaction? Well, in Romans, and keep your finger there in Kings if you're going to follow me on this, but in Romans chapter 5, in verse 3, actually I'll start with verse 2, it says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace into which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that the suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. What should be our reaction? A reaction should be that we're to rejoice in our suffering. And again, if you look in James, uh, the book of James, chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what should be our reaction? Our reaction should be one of rejoicing. Instead, our reaction to sufferings, to various trials, is that we get angry at God, or we get fearful, or we get anxious, or worried, or stressed out. But it's, it's, it, most of us probably would say, when we're going through tough times, that our reaction really isn't one of rejoicing and counting it all a joy. Maybe we know we should, we might be aware of what the Bible says, but that's not always the reality in our lives. We don't always respond that way, even though we know that we should respond that way. But there's a part of us that seems like, 
you know, it's not realistic. So, what does that mean? Does that mean there's something wrong with us spiritually? Well, yeah, it does. It does. You know, when, when you look at how we should react and how we are reacting, yes, there is, there is something wrong there. I mean, it seems like oftentimes when we read the Bible and, and the way we live our lives, there's sort of a, a disconnect there uh, between what the Bible says and how we should react. Now, what's, what's the problem? You know, this is, this is something God's been teaching me, I'd say, for the last 10, 11 years. And when I say teaching me, I don't mean that I, I became aware of these verses. I, I knew these verses, you know, when I was in high school. I mean, teaching me in an experiential sense. Most of you know, at least if you know me, know that I, I, I'm an English teacher at Anaheim High School. And I, I like it there. Uh, I, I, I like my job. But prior to teaching at Anaheim, I was teaching at Sycamore Junior High. And to be honest with you, I didn't really like being there that much. I found it hard to teach junior high kids. And for those of you in junior high, I'm not putting down junior high kids. It's just, it's just it, most of the students I had were fine. But it only takes a handful to make a class a tough class to teach. And it seemed like, I don't know, for me, it seemed like I had more than my share. Maybe it was just my perspective. And I remember, you know, sometimes I'd be going to work, just kind of dreading going to work that day. You know, another day of uh, fighting with these kids, trying to get them to stay on task. And, you know, and, you, know you can, if you don't enjoy your job or you don't enjoy your situation, you can put up with something like that for a few days or even a few weeks, but I was teaching here for seven years, and more than once I was just getting weary of this and just questioning, you know, God, why are you doing this, you know? Um, and it was, and, and after a while, you see, what also confused me is I was convinced that where I was was where God wanted me to be. I was convinced that this was God's will for me to be teaching at Sycamore. Now, the reason I thought that is because, is because when I was applying at different schools uh, and, and I was looking at the different positions available, I had decided not to apply at Sycamore. I had all these lists of schools. And I remember specifically deciding not to apply at Sycamore because at the time they were asking for both an English and a, and a social studies teacher. I didn't want to try to do both uh, starting out. And yet I get a call from Sycamore coming in for an interview. And I said, well, okay. And after I hung up, I was kind of scratching my head. I go, How? And I looked back at my notes and sure enough, I had in there that I was not going to apply at Sycamore. And I remember deciding not to send them a resume. And I even asked my wife, Judy. I said, Judy, don't you remember when I told you I was not going to apply at this school? And she remembered that. And, and, and to, um, to add to that, when I, was, I did my student teaching at Fountain Valley High School, and there was like 11 of us that were student teachers. There was an awful lot of student teachers, and we were all you know, going to be looking for a job. And even while I was student teaching, I was kind of questioning, do I really want to go into this profession or not? Uh, and so I prayed. I go, God, you know, don't let me get a job unless it's really your will. I figured I got to at least apply. I spent all this money to get this degree. But, um, so I thought, but don't let me get a job unless it's really your will. Well, of the 11 of us, I was the first one to get a job. So I had no doubts that this must have been God's will. This couldn't have just been coincidence. So I, I knew this was God's will, and yet I wasn't happy. And it's like, you know, something's wrong here. This, is, this goes counter to everything I've been taught. I've always been taught if you're doing God's will, if you're in the midst of God's will, then, that's, then you'll, you couldn't possibly be happier than when you're doing God's will. That's what people taught us. And that's what I'd heard many times. And yet here I was doing God's will. I was where God wanted me to be, and yet I wasn't happy. And I thought, something's wrong here. This is not the way it's supposed to work. Well, I learned slowly over time that the problem was that I... That I had to learn that God's main purpose for my life wasn't to make me happy. It was to make me more Christ-like. 
And that's, that's what was becoming a stumbling block for me. What I wanted for my life just was not in harmony with what God wanted for my life. And I think this is probably the, the number one hindrance for a lot of people, that God's purpose for our life is often at odds with our own goals for our own lives. And what we want in our life is just not in harmony with what God wants. See, here's the problem. We know that God loves us. We've been taught that many times. The Bible's very clear about that. We know that God loves us. Now, when we love someone, we want to make that person happy, right? From a very human perspective, and that's very normal, and, and, and I think it's, it's right. You, you would hopefully have a desire to make that person happy. I'd question your love for that person if you didn't want them to be happy. Now, if God loves us, therefore God must want to make us happy. Seems perfectly logical. And so we bring this kind of a, of a logical mindset you know, into our daily lives, and when we go through tough circumstances, we start questioning God's love. God, why are you having me go through this? Why are you allowing this in my life? And that very question, the very fact we even ask that question, presupposes a, a, a human kind of view of love that we're interposing upon God. And because of that, because we say God loves us, God must want me to be happy, we just kind of presuppose that, and that leads to the question of, well, God, why are you letting me go through this? Meaning, if you really loved me, I shouldn't be going through this. That's kind of the implication. Now, the problem, of course, is that God's ways are not our ways. In Isaiah, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, God does indeed love us, but that means he wants what's best for us. And sometimes making us happy is not always what's best. Now, in our way of thinking, that's always what's best, right? To make us happy. But in God's way of thinking, that's not always what's best for us. Again, making us happy is not God's number one concern. It's to make us more Christ-like. And that's going to mean going through tough times. Now, again, in Romans and in James, it talks about how we should rejoice in our sufferings. And we struggle with that because it's like, well, I know I should rejoice in our sufferings. But, but I don't. And here's the problem. Why does Paul say rejoice in your suffering? The reason is because it produces endurance. And that endurance produces character. And that character produces hope. Now, if, if that's your desire, if, that's your, if you so desire that, if you desire that endurance and that character and that hope, if, if that desire is greater than your desire for happiness, then you're going to rejoice in your sufferings. But if you're not rejoicing in your sufferings, it's because the things that the sufferings produces, that's not what's really important to you. What's really important to you is that you be happy and comfortable and things are working out. That's what's important. And if that's what's really important, if that's where your heart's at, then you're not going to rejoice in your sufferings. You rejoice in your sufferings when what you want out of life is what God wants. When you want you know, to, have that, to be more Christ-like, to have that character built in you, to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, like it says in James. When that's where your heart's at, and, and you know, you know that the only way you're going to achieve that goal is going through the sufferings, then you rejoice in your sufferings. If, if you want that relationship with Jesus, and the only way you can be more Christ-like, and to be more like him, and to deepen that relationship, the only way that can happen is to go through hell, then I'll go through hell, I'll go through fire if I have to, if that's what it takes to, to have that relationship with Jesus to be more Christ-like. And, and that would be our attitude if, if our hearts were in the right place. And then, then we really would rejoice in our sufferings. 
But, you know, our hearts aren't always in the right place. Now, I should caution to say God's, God's will is not to, to make us happy. That doesn't mean that his will is to make us unhappy, happy or unhappy. I'm just saying that's not his number one priority. It's to make us more Christ-like. But you know, certainly there are times where, where God's going to work things out. And we can have a joy and a peace even in the tough times, but again, only if our, if our heart's in the right place. Um, in order for that to happen, though, we have to really trust God, that when we're going through things, we trust that God knows what he's doing. A little kid, you know, you're bringing a little kid to get a shot. Well, that shot hurts, right? But that kid's just trusting his parent. That is, you know, if the parents say you need this, and, uh, you know, the kid just trusts him. He doesn't fully understand. And that's how we are. We're like little kids with God. We can't fully understand. We just have to trust him. A.W. Tozer said that faith is not the quality to persuade ourselves that black is white or that something we desire will come to pass if we only wish hard enough. Faith is the bringing is simply the bringing of our minds into accord with the truth. It is adjusting our expectations to the promises of God in complete assurance that the God of the whole earth cannot lie. And that brings us to our second hindrance that holds us back, and that is that we don't really trust God the way we should. Look back in 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 1. It said, But Elijah said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a say of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two says of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. So what he was saying is that this time tomorrow, just 24 hours from now, you know, food's going to be plentiful and it'll be selling kind of cheap and this kind of a thing. And in verse, and you look in verse 2, then the captain um, on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he, Elijah, said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. See, that uh, captain, that official, could not believe. It was the word of God. He knew it was the word of God. Now, they didn't have the whole Bible like they did. They had a few books. But they knew Elijah was God's prophet. He had proved that time and again. So he knew what Elijah was saying was the word of God, but he just couldn't believe it because with his own mind, with his own intellect, he couldn't see any way possible that this could happen. How in the world, in, in just 24 hours, could this famine totally disappear and so there'd be so much food that it'd be selling cheap? It doesn't make, he just, he couldn't see it. And so he couldn't believe it. And so often, we have trouble having faith in God because we can't see a solution to whatever our problem is. I mean, we might say, okay, I'm going to do this, this, and this, but you know, oftentimes there's factors that we can't control, and that makes us nervous, makes us uncomfortable. Uh, sometimes we just can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, and we just have to trust God. But if we can't see it, if we can't figure it out, if we don't know how the money's going to come in, or we don't know how the operation's going to happen, or whatever, you know, we have trouble having faith sometimes, because it's out of our control. And that's, that's what trusting God is all about. If we can see a way out, you don't really need to trust God. We can feel more comfortable. Yeah, okay, that money is going to come in with the next paycheck. And, and we, we get comfort in that. It's when we can't see how things are going to work out that then we really have to trust God. And that, that's, that's what's tough. And that's what we don't like. But God purposely puts us through those situations to put us in situations where we have to trust him. And if you want to have a peace in this life and experience God's joy, you can't have it without trusting God 
for those situations that we can't see a solution. Again, Tozer says uh, that although we understand God's promises, we are not quite believing. Faith enters when there is no supporting evidence to corroborate God's word of promise, and we must put our confidence blindly in the character of the one who made the promise. So even though we can't figure it out, we have to just trust the Lord. Whenever we get afraid, whenever you're worried about something, that's a sign that you're not trusting the Lord as we should. Well, part of the problem is that we hold on to this life too dearly. Look at verse 3. Now there were four men, uh, four men who were lepers at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? Now we know when God works in this life, 99.9% of the time, he uses human agency. And here, he's going to use four lepers. And if you talk about people at the bottom rung of society, I mean, lepers were it. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with lepers. Nobody even wanted to come near them. As a matter of fact, the lepers, because they were so afraid of that disease of leprosy, were not even allowed to live within the city walls. They, had to, they were kind of cast out of the city. They had to live outside the city in a leper colony. And that's where these lepers were. And so they said, well, why are we sitting here until we die? Verse 4, if we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So come now, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So what they're saying is, you know what, we're going we're gonna to die because we're starving too, because they were dependent on friends and relatives bringing food out to them, but nobody was bringing any food because there was no food to bring. And they say that things are just as bad in the city. So they say, you know what, let's go to the Syrians. Let's beg for food. Who knows? Maybe they'll give us some scraps. And if they don't, they kill us. What difference does it make? We're going to die anyway. And, and sometimes we need to have that kind of an attitude, that, you know, understand that this life's temporary. And we're going to die anyway. Everyone here is going to die sooner or later. Can't stop it. And so what's the worst that can happen to us? We die? Well, you know what? For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. And, and we need to look at this life, again, as something just temporary. I mean, if, if you go to college, would you just say, I'm going to party all the time, you don't study. And, Why are you doing that? Ah, what's the point of going to college if you're not going to enjoy yourself? Well, that would be kind of dumb. You know, you're only at college for a few years, and it's to prepare you for a whole life, a whole career, right, for the rest of your life. Are you going to ruin the rest of your life and then mess up your career because you, just, you want to party? And with that, but that's exactly how it is in this life. This life's just temporary. We've got all of eternity ahead of us. And yet we live like this life's everything. And, and, and are we messing up eternity, forsaking the rewards that ahead of us because we, we're living for this life, because we're hanging on to this life so dearly? In some ways, we don't act much different than a non-Christian. What got Jesus through his suffering through, through facing the cross that the human side of him really didn't want to go through. What does it say in Hebrews? It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And that joy was not the joy in this life. That was in the next life. And we have a, that's the same kind of joy that is set before us. Every one of you who are a true believer have that joy set before you. And whatever we go through in this life, we should look at it as temporary. Oh, no, there's a, a ding in the car. Oh, and you get all angry and upset. You know, it's all going to burn anyway. It's, you know, it's, it's never going to last. And sometimes we lose that perspective. From an eternal perspective, you know, who cares about this thing or that thing and, you know, whatever. 
the TV doesn't work. Oh, no, we have to go without TV, you know. The computer doesn't work. Oh, everything's shut down. You know, we get all stressed out about things. But from eternity, you know what? This is all going to end up burning up in the end anyway. And, and we lose that perspective for the joy that was set before him. And then lastly, the thing that holds us back is we fail to share with others what God has given us. Look in verse 5 of chapter 7, 2 Kings again. So they, the, the lepers, so they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp the Syrians, of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army. So they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and they fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp and went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and, and went and hid them, then they came back and entered another tent and carried off those things and, and from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So suddenly, these lepers were just blessed beyond their imagination. I mean, they, they had all this food, they had all these things, and at first they're just hoarding it for themselves, you know, taking it and hiding it, and they're going to another tent and doing the same thing, and at some point they realize, you know what, this, this isn't right. You know, tremendous amounts of blessings and things, and you know, we need to share this. And, and sometimes, as Christians, we need to have that same answer. You know, God has blessed every one of you with some kind of a gift, some kind of a spiritual gift, some kind of a talent, some kind of skill. He's blessed you in some way. And you need to ask yourself, are you using, using how God has gifted you for the spiritual benefit of others? Because that's why he's blessed you. In, in Romans chapter 12, verse 6, it says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if service in our serving. Uh, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes, in other words, if God's blessed you with money, in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And I don't think that's an exhaustive list, but what Paul is saying, you know, God has gifted you and blessed you in some way, but he didn't bless you just because he likes you and wants to bless you. I mean, he does like you, he loves you. But it's not just that. It's so that you can be a blessing for others. Too often we just come to church and, you know, we hear the sermon or you go to a Bible study or some kind of small group or you maybe even have your morning devotional time. And all that's really good and that's great. And all of that is, is, is just feeding you. God's feeding you spiritually. But sometimes we can become fat Christians. You know, imagine if these lepers hadn't told anybody, just ate all this food for themselves. They would, they would have become fat lepers. And sometimes I think we're like that. If, if, if you're blessed... We need to be a blessing for others. And that's not always comfortable. We like to kind of stay comfortable, you know? Just, just to, like physically. If you, you can sit in front of the TV, you don't want to go exercise, you know, whatever. Oh, we get very comfortable. You know what? If you never exercise, your muscles over time, not, not just like that, but over time, they start to atrophy. And it's, it's not a healthy thing to do. It doesn't feel unhealthy. It feels pretty comfortable. Same thing spiritually. 
If we're not involved in ministry and somehow, if in some ways we're not being a blessing to others, and it could be something as simple as helping to set up chairs or something like that, or those who put the, uh, you know, the juice in the uh, cups here for communion. I mean, you ever think about that? I mean, you know, you don't get a lot of praise, but, you know, there's some way, somehow, you can be a blessing to others. And if you're not sure what your gift is, ask others or pray about it. But it's more than that. Again, look at verse 9. Then they said to, this is back in Kings, they said to, to one another, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news. And he uses that word good news. You know, the word gospel means good news. And you think of the tremendous good news that we have. Their good news was that there's all kinds of food here and material goods. And that kind of, now, for a, a city that was starving, that certainly is tremendously good news. But when you think about it, the news we have far outweighs that. Yes, they're going to have food to eat. Yes, that's great and that's wonderful, but they're eventually going to die anyway. We're all going to die, as I said earlier. But, you know, the news we have, if people accept it and accept Jesus Christ in their hearts, they live forever, for all of eternity. we got the, the greatest news in the world. Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. So we've received freely. You don't have to work for it, earn it. It's by grace. By grace, freely you have received, freely give. I think some of us would like him just to stop at freely you have received and just praise the Lord that we've received. But he says after that, freely give. Now these lepers were afraid that, you know, if they didn't do that, that God might punish them or something. So they, they knew they had to go share this good news. But they knew the people weren't going to come to them. They had to go to the people. Verse 10. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we, come, we came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied in the tents as they were. Then the gatekeeper called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive. And get into the city. So the king was very skeptical. Uh, even though he had the word from Elijah. Elijah told him just yesterday, you know, hey, God's going to do a work. But he was still skeptical. So verse 13, and one of his servants said, let, us, let some of the men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the, the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished, and let us send and see. In other words, he's saying, look, before he dismisses too quickly, let's check it out. Let's take a few horses that are, you know, that, whose heads we haven't sold for 900 bucks yet, and let's send out some men and see if this is true. What have we got to lose? They, the Syrians might kill them, but you know, we're going to die anyway. So that's what they decided to do. So they took two horsemen. Servant suggested five. The king's a little cautious here. Just want, doesn't want to send out any more than necessary. Took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a say of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two says of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. So the, suddenly food became abundant, just like God said. Verse 17, Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he had leaned, to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died as the man of God said when, he, uh, when he, the king had come down to him. 
So here was this official who had doubted God's word. And just like Elijah had, had prophesied, he saw it. He, he was aware of what was going on. And he was supposed to be watching the gate. But the people in their haste to get out there, he ended up uh, getting trampled. So he indeed saw it, but he never got to taste of it. He never got to enjoy it. And you know, isn't that true of everyone who doesn't believe? Everyone who doesn't believe is going to find out someday, because we're all going to stand before God. Whether we believe or not, everyone will stand before God on Judgment Day. And everyone, whether they believed in this life or not, is going to find out that what God's Word said was true. And some of the things they might have rejected, they're going to find out is true. And they're going to find out that God's salvation is true. But if they hadn't believed, they're not going to enjoy it. So they will see it, but they won't be able to enjoy it. You know, back in high school, I was talking to this guy who was a self-proclaimed agnostic or an atheist, something like that. And he believed when you die that, you know, you're like a rock, nothing. So I was talking to him and I said, you know what, Dave? Let's say you believe in God. And let's say you believe in Jesus. And then you die and it turns out what you said is true. You're like a rock. Well, you haven't lost anything. So you believe, so you're like a rock. So, so what harm was done? But if it turns out that I'm right, then I've gained all of eternity. But let's say what you believe turns out to be true. You believe what you believe, and you die, just like you think. You're just like a rock. We haven't really gained anything, right? Because you don't think or feel you're like a rock. But let's say you're wrong. Now you're lost for all of eternity. So you see, if you believe in Jesus, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. But if you believe the way you do, you've got nothing to gain and everything to lose. I thought my logic was flawless, but he was so confident in what he believed that he still wouldn't uh, accept Jesus. So... I don't know where he is right now. Shouldn't ask that. But, um, but it's the truth. Whether you believe or not, it's it, it's not going to make a difference. It doesn't change the fact that 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 uh, official couldn't possibly believe that in in one day's time there's going to be tons of food. But it didn't change the reality that that's what happened. You don't believe. It doesn't change the fact that you will stand for God whether you believe it or not. So what have we learned? We've learned that we're running the race, but what holds us back? What makes it seem like we're running so slow, like we're in water? Well, first off, I think for many of us, the number one hindrance is that, that God's purpose for us is often at odds with our own purpose for our own lives, that our desires are not in tune with the Lord's. And, and for that to happen, for us to desire what we should desire, we need to trust God, which is the second thing. And thirdly, we hold on to this life too dearly. We live as this life is everything. Instead of that, we're only here temporarily. We're just passing through. And lastly, we need to share with others what God has given us. God has blessed us to be a blessing for others, and, uh, and we need to, to get involved. That's part of running that race, is out there ministering in some way, shape, or form. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace that you've given us, because we, we realize, we understand that to run this race that you have called us to run, to follow the example of Jesus, that we can only do that in your strength. We can only do that with the grace that you've given us. Because in and of ourselves, we will always fall short. But thank you, Lord, that you have given us uh, the grace to run the race and that we can know your peace and your joy in this life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.